Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you much, so much for bringing uh, Mark uh, to the Advent, he and uh, Naomi and his kids. And we just ask, Lord, that you would bless him now, bless us, open our hearts uh, that we might sit at, at your feet and hear from you uh, through your servant Mark. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation, Joe. I, I, I asked Joe, you know, what, what are these? what's the typical content of a thing like like this, and you know, said talk you know, man stuff. I, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't complete. I'm not good at that. Um, just to tell you, I'm not, I'm not good at that. Um, so, if you, we'll have a question and answer time after. If you want to talk about some of those things, sex, whatever. Um, I'm joking. I don't want to really do that. Um, what I, what I did. I'm kind of, I'm a Bible guy uh, at the end of the day, and so what I wanted to do this morning or this afternoon is spend some time in a text with you. I've already shared this in a couple of contexts in, in some small groups at the Advent, um, but it's a text that's doing a work on me now, and so I figured, well, I might as well sort of share this with um, as many folks as I can. And it's born really out of some thought that I, was, I had given to the small group leaders here at the Advent. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a book that I commend to you. I think it was bought for all the Advent small group leaders called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let's just say a word about Bonhoeffer. I teach, by the way, at Beeson Divinity School. That, that's my, my primary job um, at Sanford University. And this whole semester in our chapel at Beeson, we're giving our semester to um, a study of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and so if you are free on Tuesdays at 11, you're more than welcome. I'll put a little plug in there for chapel. Um, Bonhoeffer is a figure of really extreme interest. Uh, a biography was written on Bonhoeffer a few years ago by a guy named Eric Metaxas. Any of you read this biography by Metaxas? It's received a lot of um, a lot of attention and some critical feedback as well. Um, but Bonhoeffer is one of these figures from the early 20th century, primarily the 30s and the 40s, who was doing Christian theology in the middle of a very difficult situation in Germany during the rise of National Socialism. You know this story much better than I can repeat it, Um, but the beginning of the 1930s, as the National Socialists were moving their way into power, really, um, for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, let me commend a book to you by a fellow named William Sheridan entitled The Nazi Seizure of Power. Um, Really fascinating book. Anybody? I'm just curious. Anybody read Sheridan? That's a really fascinating book book at um, really how the Nazis, the National Socialists, who were for, for the most part a fringe movement within German politics, made their way to be into the totalitarian um, position that they had. And to do that, he decided in the early 1960s, that is Sheridan, to look at a particular small town in northern Germany um, so that he can look at it on the micro level instead of trying to tackle the macro German uh, um, um, issues that were at play. So to do that, he said, I'm going to leave this town nameless, and I'm going to leave all the figures unnamed as well to protect the innocent. I want to protect this town. So he wrote this book. It's a fascinating book that basically argues that it was a confluence of national pride, a certain kind of religious instinct that came together, and the coercive use of power that allowed the Nazis to move into the position that they had, especially given the economic difficulties that Germans were facing in the late 20s and the 30s. 
Um, and so this book came out. It had quite an impact. And then um, Der Spiegel, which is this uh, German periodical, they ran a review of Sheridan's book in the mid-60s, and through their own investigative journalism, they identified what town this was, and they outed uh, Sheridan. Um, and the town was the small town of Nordheim, Germany. My wife and my family and I lived um, for the uh, last year for six months in Göttingen, Germany, which is literally 15 kilometers from Nordheim, this little city. So we read this book and then went to Nordheim and looked around. And it really is an amazing thing to see on the ground how the National Socialists move from the periphery to the center. And what can be understood really in, in, in something that is a strange providence. I don't know how else to describe it. It is a strange providence that really leaves us speechless on multiple levels. But a part of that movement was to force those who were in public office, including religious office, to make a vow of allegiance to Hitler, to Hitler as their Führer, as the leader of the church. In response to that, to this so-called German Christianity, in response to that, a group of very faithful Christians and theologians came together in the city of Barman to, de to devise a declaration called the Barman Declaration that was written pretty much in its entirety by the theologian Karl Barth. Here's a story of funny providence, right? So Karl Barth, the only Reformed person there, met together with five other Lutherans to work on this Barman Declaration to counter the German Christian uh, swearing of allegiance to Hitler. They came together, they met in a hotel, they had a big lunch, this is Barth's recollection, they had a big lunch, they drank coffee, they had dessert, they smoked cigars, and then the idea was they were to go to their rooms, they had five topics or so to write on, each one was to write on their topic and then come back together in the evening to collate what they were doing for this Barman Declaration. Well, um, the four Lutherans fell asleep, right? So they had all their, all their food, they had their cigars, their coffee. They slept all afternoon. Bart worked hard on it. They came back together. And in effect, here's one of these strange providences. The Barman Declaration was entirely written by Karl Bart, except for 17 words. And if you read this uh, Barman Declaration, there's some very interesting turns of phrases in there. One of them that stands out, especially in the German, is there is only one Fuhrer in the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. So there are these very direct statements against this rise of, of National Socialism and the grip that that had on the German churches. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of this confessional church, this confessing church that was standing over against the swelling tide of nationalism, of National Socialism, and the, the, really the confluence of religion and uh, national fervor. And so, in that experience, Bonhoeffer lost teaching posts. He wasn't allowed to public universities. And they started a, um, an experimental seminary in a small town called Finkenwalde. And while he was in Finkenwalde teaching this small group of confessing church seminarians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this book, Life Together. Um, and it's a very fascinating book. It's small. It's a loaded book that's a challenge for for us as Christians to think about what it means to live in Christian community. 
Um, just to kind of finish the story, most of you know this and can finish it for me, but, but Bonhoeffer went over to the States. He spent some time here, was really, frankly, taken aback by African-American Christianity in Harlem, New York. He'd never seen, this young Lutheran had never seen that kind of explosive worship before. It grabbed a hold of him. Karl Barth sent him a letter while he was in London and basically said, how can you stay here, there in London, when your people are suffering here? It convicted his conscience. Bonhoeffer comes back, and to make a long story short, he ends up being martyred about four or World War II was over in a prison camp in, Fla- in uh, Flossenburg. It's a really moving tale for those of you who haven't tracked it, and for those of you who have, you know how that gripped you personally. So he's written this book, Life Together. It's had a, a, an impact on me, and this is how... Bonhoeffer begins the book, and this is the text I want to read with you for a little bit. He begins the whole book, chapter 1, on community. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's a direct quote from Psalm 133. So that's our reading this morning, and that's the text we're going to talk about, Psalm 133. And by the way, I, I'm in teaching mode. I, I had Hebrew students this morning for an hour and a half. So if you want to fire questions away, don't, don't consider this as sort of a monologue address. You feel free to interject. A Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like precious oil that's on the head that runs down onto the beard, onto the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Now the surface account of this, as I read this text, is pretty straightforward. What is it that the psalmist is saying in this psalm of ascent? This psalm of life along the way, on the way to the temple to worship God. The basic thrust of the psalm is rather simple, isn't it? It's a good, it's a pleasant thing when brothers dwell in unity, when they live in unity. All the translations, and I need to be careful here, but I think you can understand where I'm going with this. All the translations, New American Standard, New King James Version, King James Version, New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard Version, all of the translations basically translate Psalm 133.1 in the same way. Behold, it's a good and a pleasant thing when brothers live together in unity. I I have three boys, an eight-year-old, six-year-old, and a three-year-old, and I, um, you, some of you have uh, children as well. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, when our children live together in unity? Um, I, I've, I've seen it like once or twice. And, uh, and when that happened, I was like, there it is. Take a snapshot, and then let's move on with life. Um, it's a beautiful and it's a good thing, and that's what this verse is after. But there's a nuance here, and it's the nuance that I really want to press with you this Uh, This afternoon. Little words matter. Little words matter. And this is going to sound a little bit pretentious, so bear with me here. There's a Hebrew particle, two letters in Hebrew, that say it's the the Hebrew word gam, which is how we would translate that also or even. Now, I encourage my students who take Hebrew from me, never do this kind of thing in the pulpit or when you're teaching. Don't refer to the Hebrew. It sounds pretentious. It sounds arrogant. But bear with me, because I think it, it, uh, it bears a point. What's at issue here is a nuance beyond the kind of straightforward claim that it's good and it's pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. I think 
we need to gloss at something like this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together even in unity. Also in unity. What's the nuance here? The nuance here is that their identity as brothers, their status as brothers in the community of faith, is not in question. That is who they are. But the psalmist says, when the community of faith lives into that, they live into the unity of what already is, it is a good and it is a pleasant thing. Their status as brothers is never in question. Our status in the community of faith is never in question. But what a good and a beautiful thing it is when brothers live together in that which we already are, in unity. Uh, Bonhoeffer, if I can go back to him for a second, I think one of the most salient and important insights that this book makes is the following. Christian community is not an ideal that needs to be reality cured for us. Christian community is not an ideal, it's a reality. Why is it real? It's real because we are in Christ. Our identity is in Him. We are brothers. That's, that's who we are. Well, let's move on with the psalm. Verse 2, then the psalmist begins to use this beautiful imagery. Um, it's like precious oil on the head that runs down on the beard, even on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. I mean, what's the image here? The image is that strange concoction that we read about in Exodus chapter 30, that, that sacred oil, um, a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of myrrh, some olive oil. Don't use it for anything profane. This is sacred oil that's used to sanctify the temple, to sanctify the priest. And it's poured on his head, it drips down onto his beard, and then it begins to drip down onto the whole of his body. That's just a beautiful image there. The the pouring of the oil that moves from the top uh, to the bottom. Then there's another image here. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, um, we have to be, the psalmist has to be talking here in language other than geographical. Why? Mount Hermon is about 120 miles north of the center of Jerusalem, which is Zion. So, and, and Hermon is a 9,200-foot-high mountain in, in Israel. It's, it's, it's a tall mountain. So we're not talking here about geography. That is, you have the dew coming all the way from 120 miles north, trickling down to Zion. It's not talking about that. It's talking about something that's more spatial and spiritual. So what are the images here, the oil and the dew? What, how do they sort of collude with one another to give a certain idea to what the psalmist is after? It's the notion that that which is poured onto the top trickles down uh, low, thus sanctifying and blessing everything that's underneath it. This is a psalm of ascent. This is a psalm of going to the temple. Um, I don't know if you've done a lot of thinking about the temple. I actually think it's an important theme as we enter into our season of Lent. But as we think about the temple, what was the temple to the people of Israel. It was something sacramental, if I can use Episcopalian language. It was something sacramental. It was a physical reality in the midst of God's people to let them know that in the middle of your own quotidian, everyday life, there is eternity. 
It's what John Levinson calls the intimation of immortality. The Garden of Eden is present in the temple. If we can reverse the Requiem Mass for the dead, the temple functions in this way. In the midst of death, we see life. That's what the temple was. It was a reminder that God is alive, that holiness and death are at odds with one another. And this was a song that was sung on the way to the temple, to that place where where life is. Um, It's why, by the way, some of these bizarre laws that we read about in Leviticus are the way in which they are. Why could a priest not handle something that was dead? Not because of it just being dead. The reason why was that death and holiness, death and life were at odds with one another in the temple. They could not come together. So here we are in the temple, moving toward the temple. And here we hear Jesus of Nazareth making these bizarre, crazy statements about the temple. Tear this thing down, and in three days, I can build it up again. And they murmured among themselves, saying, Is he crazy? Doesn't he know how long it took to make this temple? But they did not know that Jesus was talking about his own body, about himself. To be in the temple is to be in life. It's to be where immortality is. And I want you to hear the last phrase of Psalm 133 and see how these themes begin to converge onto one another. For there, that is, on Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing. What is the blessing? The blessing is life evermore. It's there that God commands the blessing. That language is, to me, immediately self-evident. What does it mean to command a blessing? Let me take a stab at it. I think what the psalmist is saying here is that the Lord is sovereign over the blessing. That he will see to it. That he will make sure it finds its goal and its end. The blessing is life more. To be in Christ is to be in life. How has God seen to it to make his blessing be sure? How has he commanded the blessing ultimately and finally? He's done it in the person and the work of His Son. And to be in Jesus is to be in life. So we sort of step back from this and look at this psalm in light of a larger sort of Christian theology. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity with one another. How good and how pleasant it is when we walk into what we already are in Christ. I don't think, and I'll just share personally here with you for a second, I don't think there's been any theme within the Bible and Christian theology that has had a more profound impact on me in the last five years than this one. And that is my identity, who I am, the marginalette that you see before, is not the full and complete one. The marginalette that is full and complete is the one that Paul talks about Beginning to the ending of his letters. It's the person that is in Christ. And what a good and a beautiful thing it is when we walk into what we already are. All right, I want to talk to you for a second about this. You can talk back to me. Um, it's not very masculine, is it? At least from a certain cultural perspective. To admit as men that we need one another. I mean, I think, and by the way, this is a classical idea as well, even within Greco-Roman literature. 
I mean, what is this sort of the, the, the pinnacle of virtue in some sense is being self-sufficient. I mean, that, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's what virtue is. And it's a real challenge for you and for me to recognize that the Bible leans against some of these kind of macho notions of what it means to be a man. To recognize that we are people who are in need. That I would not be enough on my own without the community of faith. You know this language in Paul, don't you? 1 Corinthians 12. How can the foot say to the hand, you're not as good as me? Or how can the eye say to the hand, I wish I was the hand and not the eye? It doesn't make any sense. The way in which community is fitted together means that we necessarily need one another in this journey of faith. And on our own, we're not need each other. And in our engagement with one another as brothers, as we lean into one another in life, and a pattern of discipleship that's on our way to the celestial city, as we do that and we recognize our need for one another, we begin to view our brothers in different ways, don't we? This is not someone just to exploit for my own end, for my own goal. This is a brother that I need. And without this brother, without this other, I would not be sufficient in and unto myself. And by the way, that's not just about brothers. That's about Wives and kids and the way in which we engage other people in our spheres of influence. It's a completely different way of thinking about leadership. It's what Dan Allender calls eating with a limp. Admitting and walking into our weaknesses and allowing that admission and that confession, which is part of our identity as a Christian, to show that we need one another along the way. I I served, um, before I came um, to Advent, I served on, as an elder in a Presbyterian church for five years. It's a small church plant. Um, we had one pastor at the time. Um, I was seminary trained, had an master divinity degree, even had a, one of those PhDs, which basically means I, I can be called doctors, my kids tell me, but I can't really help anybody. Um, and so, you know, this is I've done all this. And now, and now I'm on. I'm on this elder board with, with men who, they, they've not gone to seminary. Um, and so, you know, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm charged and ready. I've got something to bring. I've got something to offer. I can remember some of these first two or three session meetings, hearing the wisdom that was coming from these men who had never been to seminary, never had any formal theological training, but they were men who were students of the Word. They were meek. They were godly. They were seeking to serve Christ. And I was blown away by the insights that they had, the wisdom that they had. I had a lot of knowledge to offer. Here's some knowledge about this, that, and the other. But the wisdom that they brought, it was was an immediate revelation to myself of how needy I am and desperate I am for others in the community of faith. To learn, to hear, to listen. Even the way in which I lean into my wife, to learn, to hear, to listen. And this is one that I'm finding extremely difficult, but it's true. The way in which I lean into my children. They are arms and feet in the body of Christ. My boys are. And I have something to learn from them. And by the way, they do it. Boy, if if I don't have a conscience, I've got three of them now. Right. (laughs) We need each other along the way. Why? Because it's who our, what our fundamental identity is as a human being. The culture is telling us so many things about what it is to be a man. And some of those are very good. Don't, 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 I hope you're not mishearing me here. 
Right? My eight-year-old shot his first shotgun over Christmas. I think that's great stuff. Right? Well, I'm not talking about those kind of things. But I'm saying the kind of self-sufficiency, the kind of bravado that views ourselves as not in need of others is something that the Bible leans against from the beginning to the end. Why? Because we're in a body. All the members are important. We need to lean into one another as we encourage one another along life's way. That's what the psalmist is after. How good, how pleasant it is. What a wonderful thing. When brothers, that's what we are, actually live into the unity that's already been provided for us in Christ. Well, let me close in prayer and then maybe if we have time we can ask questions or we can eat cookies. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. And especially as we're staring at Lent. Lord, let this season be a time for us to reflect and to pray and to ask, Lord, that you would again, by your gospel, by the truth of your word, that you would shape our own thinking and reflection about who we are. It is one of the more profound things that Bonhoeffer said in a moment of self-doubt. Who am I, O Lord? Whoever I am, please know that we are yours. Let us walk into that, Lord. And let us learn the joy as men of what it is to show our need and to lean into others along life's way. It'll be like oil. It'll be like dew, Lord, that drips from your head, O Jesus, all the way down into your body. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you want to fire anything away? or or, I don't know if you can really do that or not. Yeah, so it's a good point, and I think you know this is a fundamental shift that happens for most of us at some at multiple stages in our lives. Um, when it dawns on us that our assured presupposition on something actually isn't as assured as we once thought, um, you know, there's we, we uh, some of you, especially the lawyers in the group, I don't want to categorize all of you, um, but you know, we have, we are gifted at sort of the critical analysis. This is a gift that we have. But the danger is we don't often bring that critical analysis to bear on, on our own selves. In other words, we're very critically analytical of others, but not, but, not of our, but not of our own selves. I mean, this happened in my own family. I mean, I'll tell you this, and, and then, then we'll be done. But um, I mean, even in my engagements with my wife, I assume in some sort of disagreement that I'm right. I mean, it's just, 
that isn't that, that's just obvious. And if she were to just lean into that, she'd be much happier than I would too. I'm joking. I'm not joking. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I just assume that I'm, I'm that I'm right. And this has happened a few times with our children, where I thought, you know, Naomi, you're overreacting, baby. You got to calm, calm down, calm down. Our, our our youngest had was chewing some almonds, and he fell back, and chair hit him, and he, and he inhaled some of these almonds, and he had a kind of funny click sound going on. Well, he was breathing. He was fine. But Naomi was very concerned about this. I said, babe, calm down. She says, no, no, you go now. And I thought, I'm right. She's wrong, but I'll lean into this. He was under, right, and had sort of, they put him under within an hour after that conversation. My wife was completely, her instincts were right, and my instincts were wrong. After that happens a few times, you start to go, oh, junk, right? Um, I I need to start, maybe a little bit more self-doubt is not a bad thing. All right. Blessings. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, a banker. I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm, I'm a dad. I mean, what... I'm just, just living my life. Like, what, what is... What is one thing to take from what you said? I appreciate so much you sort of being um, vulnerable and, and talking about how this has worked on you. What, what are... You know, as we as men just sort of live our lives, we want to be Christians and we want to kind of get get through the day and we want to be successful and we have our goals and things. What is one thing that you think that we can take, a, a, a phrase or a thought that we can take uh, through this lens? Well, I mean... To be fair to the to the what I think the intent of these texts are that we've dealt with today, we are primarily dealing with the community of faith. So I recognize that the third floor of whatever building you're working on isn't the community of faith. I mean, I get that there's something particular about the Christian community that's being addressed. But at the same time, there's a certain kind of virtuous temperament that I think is being described here that we can take into our life with others as we engage others. Um, to think about others, to value them as persons, no matter their position or their clout, all the way from the top to the bottom. Um, I mean, we have to, I think about this even in the context of where I teach, you know, how I engage my colleagues. Do I value their opinion? Do I listen? Or am I shut off at the beginning of that conversation because of past experiences with said person? And so I think there's a certain kind of temperament and virtue that we can walk into that is a Christian virtue, and let's call it what the Bible calls it, meekness. That's what it is. It's meekness. It's a sense of power that's under control. And we're, we all, my, my sense is kind of sniffing the group here, we all tend toward the alpha male side, would be my hunch. Um, and this is a sort of, I guess would be a good Lenten discipline for, to ask God to, to teach us to walk into meekness in our relationships in every sphere that we, that we have. Yeah. Well, you want to take Hebrew? Um, you'll cut some years off purgatory if you come to take Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, we start a series in the dean's class on Sunday morning in Galatians here. Um, next class, I don't know. I have to find out. I'm in, I don't know. Most of the stuff I teach is Hebrew. This is a... Maybe kind of a dumb question, but how do you relate the kind of brotherhood guys in the infantry get when they are under lots of danger and things to the Christian type of brotherhood that some may have? I think there's a lot of analogies. 
you know, Paul uses that kind of ana- the, the soldier analogy in Timothy. That that's not beyond the purview, actually. My father—I'm a military kid. My father's 22 years Air Force, and I was thinking about how to slide this illustration in on the way over, and it didn't kind of work. But now, now it will. Um, my father, one of my father's best stories, he flew reconnaissance in the security service for years over the northern coast of Russia. So he had to, he had to um, go to Arctic survival school. It, it's the funniest story. These guys are freezing cold out there, and this old salt of a sergeant, they can't get this fire started. This old salt of a sergeant pulls out a tube of napalm and puts it out on the, on the, on the, on the wood, and they have immediate fire, right? Um, <laughs> And to hear my father talk about the kind of camaraderie that they had within their various military units, I do, I do think there's an analogy there, not necessarily because of the physical combat side, but because of the spiritual combat side. I think that's where a legitimate analogy would be made. We are in a common battle with one another, and I think especially as men, our battles are t- typically similar to one another. We can name them quickly, the kind of things that we struggle against. Um, so, yes, I think the, the battling imagery is, is a good one. It's a biblical one. All right. <laughs>